I mean. <laughs> so let's start. So let's start. Let's start. Let's So we want to start with just your present state, like very quickly, quick summary of sort of where you are right now uh, in terms of your work. My name is Karan Puri. Yeah, I'm a senior product manager at TD Bank. Uh, I'm part of this group called External Ecosystems and Partnership, and I focus on digital identity uh, products at TD. Give us just a small snippet of sort of what does a product manager within this sort of context do. So I, I think uh, product management can be like obviously broken down into different parts, but the area that I focus on is more new product development. So this is this area focuses on emerging business models within the financial institutions. Of course, we have traditional business models that have existed for years, but with the disruption with fintech sort of coming into play, what are the areas that a traditional bank can sort of you know develop products and create new models? So. In, at a very high level, that is the objective of external ecosystem. And within that, you have open banking, a marketplace, um, digital identity, et cetera. So, uh, and, and also a group that focuses on partnerships with uh, fintechs. So, yeah. We're going to do a deep dive and expand into some of these uh, topics that you just sure. touched on. So let's start with how we met. Actually, even before the point where we met, let's go a little bit further back. Where you sort of started? Where did you grow up? So tell us a little bit about that. I was born and raised in Bombay uh, until grade six, grade seven. That's where I spent my time. My father uh, was in a transferable job. So every five, six years, he tra- got transferred to a different location. So uh, until grade six in Bombay, then went to a uh, central part of India, Madhya Pradesh, in a very rural area where we had all the amenities to play sports and good schools. But outside of that ecosystem, we couldn't really do anything. Um, And then uh, came back to Bombay. So most of my life, I think my education was in Bombay. And for my undergrad, I went to Pune to do my engineering. Funny story, actually, um, until grade 12, I was very focused on becoming a fighter pilot in Navy. That was what I wanted. That was my aspiration as a kid. And uh, I, I started like, you know, I was super overweight in until grade 10 and started running long distance to qualify for the physicals for the National Defense Academy. I wrote my, I wrote my entrance. I got I cleared that. I went into the physical uh, examination, et cetera. And there was a point where your parents need to consent for you to be able to join the National Defense Academy. And... Uh, my, my, my parents, my grandparents had a different uh, plan for me as, you know, most of uh, Indian Asian kids experience. Uh, so they said, why don't you do one thing? Why don't you do, why don't you become an engineer? Because you already got the grades to sort of, you know, go for, a, uh, for engineering. Do engineering, complete four years, and then join the army as an engineer. And of course, you know, I couldn't really battle that and I joined engineering. <laughs> So that was the beginning of my undergrad. Uh, I think the first year I struggled, like as to why I'm here. Second year, I thought I want to be, uh, so I, I, I did electrical engineering. Second year, I was focused on, I would do my master's in the US in chip designing. Third year, when it became hardcore electronics that I was working on, I dropped that idea completely. And I said, uh, I don't think I'm going to do that. I might do something around mathematical modeling, uh, a master's in mathematical modeling. By the time I reached fourth year, uh, I was, I, some of my mentors, my, my, my friends, guides, they sort of introduced me to Ayn Rand, 
the philosophy of objectivism and I read Fountainhead and I was so influenced by Fountainhead and I knew after getting out of engineering, I want to hustle like, like a true hustle. And for me, the hustle was not in the form of an engineer, but in the form of a sales and marketing professional. I wanted to be a sales and marketing professional. Now, that was very intentional. Like if I, I, would, I would talk more about my background, et cetera, some of my experiences are intentional, some situational, but that was a very intentional idea that, you know, I, I was like, I, I really want to get into sales and marketing. So I finished my engineering in Pune. For more, people who do not know where Pune is, Pune is close to Bombay. It's called the Oxford of the East because of, I think at that time, 150 engineering colleges that existed in Pune itself. Um, it's all, it's a student town. It's, it's a blast. Uh, and then I decided to come back to Bombay to pursue my sales and marketing uh, career. The idea was to get into any aspect of sales and marketing. Get in. I have no background in sales and marketing. I'm an engineer. If I get an opportunity in any space from there on, I will explore the business part of the world. Uh, so, so that was the idea. And I got my first job in a uh, media planning agency. Uh, and that brought me to Delhi to work on one of the biggest uh, FMCG brands, Reckit. Uh, so I did media planning for a year, year and a half, two years. And I think I realized in two years that this is great. This is a great angle to looking at how marketing spends money, what's reach, what's targeting customers, etc. But I think my, my intention was not to be a specialist, was to sort of explore. And from there on, it's a funny story, actually. Uh, one of my friends, she had applied to a consulting opportunity uh, with Accenture in, uh, in Delhi. And she said, you, do you have any contacts at Accenture? I applied. I haven't heard back. Can you find out what's happening with my application? So I knew some people. Then I called them. I said, hey, I'm inquiring about my friend. And they said, would you be interested in pursuing a career at, at Accenture? I did not have any business degree. And most people had a business education. And I said, well, sure. And four months later, I had an offer from Accenture. And that's when I sort of moved from an advertising agency or a planning agency to, uh, to consulting. So again, next two and a half years in consulting, totally different experience. I traveled, so I worked on Unilever uh, portfolio. I traveled in Asia, I traveled in Europe with, to, to sort of, uh, you know, uh, work with the marketing teams uh, at Unilever. Completely different. Like one, coming out of India for the first time to work, meet people who work outside of India. Two, coming out of an agency and work on a different angle of the business that I think completely opened my uh, sort of, you know, um, perspective. And I think I very quickly had decided while these experiences are great, and I've got great people to sort of, you know, mentor me, coach me. I think I lack the foundation of business education. And that's when I, I was very sure that I would finish two, two and a half years at Accenture and pursue an MBA program. Um, uh, at that point, did not know where. So I wrote my GMAT exam, uh, 2008, 2009, markets were crashing. So UK was my destination that I wanted to be in. But... UK employment uh, market was not great. US was uh, crashing. Canada was an amazing spot and it had one of the top B schools in top 50 in the world. So I was like, I've never thought of Canada, a place to go. 
but let's apply. And so I applied to like a few B schools and then depending on uh, my admit and my bursaries, et cetera, I sort of decided to come to Toronto in 2010. So that was my wow. stepping out of India to Canada. I think this coffee, by the way, is amazing. Yeah. This is a pour over, right? It is. It is. It's, it is pretty it's good. It's just a different experience altogether. It, it's, I, man, it is, it's my favorite. Ever since I've ha- started having this coffee, I, I can't imagine drinking any other coffee now. And it's like this nice, slow, gradual process. You know, in India, you have like first all milk coffee. Then you go to cap, then you go to lattes, then cappuccinos. Then you do curtados and then you do all black. So now I have reached the all black coffee stage. So this is what did you say? This is like coffee, which has figs and chocolate. Oh my God. It's fig and chocolate. It's pretty good. It's actually, it's amazing. Yeah. The coffee is pretty good. I, I think it takes like a few tries, like a few tastes, like you drink it a couple of times and then you sort of get used to it. And then it's, it's like the first time you had beer, you're like, oh, that feels so weird. But then, then you start craving that taste. So it's, it's, it's a bit of an acquired taste, but I highly recommend it. I'm, I'm joining the club with you, Paul. <laughs> so, um, so one thing, okay. So I want to go back to first the statement of you wanted to be a fighter pilot. Let's talk a little bit about that first. Uh, my mother, when she was pregnant, I should watch this movie called Vijeta. It was a movie where there was a, there was a son, the eldest son, he converts into a Sikh and uh, he joins the, joins the air force. And to me, uh, she made me watch it so many times after that. I think I just wanted to be a pilot. Like I just wanted to be a fighter pilot, not a commercial pilot, mind you, a fighter pilot. Uh, so yeah, it, it remained with me. And then the, the, you know how in India, you experience the, the, the power and the stature of a uniform, especially army, right? It's regarded as one of the top, um, after the bureaucrats, one of the top, uh, you know, a carrier of like people in uniform. So to me, I was always influenced by them and I had exposure to a lot of them in the family. Uh, so I was very, like, I was like, what is life without uniform? Right. And, and that was until grade 12. Uh, and then I changed my direction. And yeah, but it's, it still remains very close to me. I try to follow. Funny, my engineering college was 20 kilometers from National Defense Academy in Pune. And? And I used to drive, uh, ride my bike to that place so many times to like feel the whole experience. Uh, yeah. Did you ever get a chance to go like in a, in like a proper fighter jet? I could not, I did not. Um, I had a chance to apply for, uh, the army, uh, engineering, uh, department in the army after my engineering, uh, and few of my actually colleagues uh, from engineering went into that program. I, it didn't really excite me. Uh, but what happened was when I came to Bombay, back to Bombay, I sort of, uh, wanted to explore like the whole experience of flying. So I did go to Bombay flying school to, you know, for the first few sessions to sort of pick up, uh, flying, but it was not the same. This was more like a pleasure, like gliders, etc. Uh, and sometimes I think about it. It's actually very easy to get a fly, uh, uh, personal private license in Canada. 
So it might cost you like $15,000 or so, I think. I'm not sure. I checked it like three, four years ago. I could fly here. I think it was not about flying. It was more about being a fighter pilot. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good distinction that it's not just about like machinery, but it's more about the emotion behind it, yeah. the sentiment, the, the sort of the status that you get from wearing that uniform. Absolutely. And I think I held on to that belief for a long time. Like uh, a lot of my, I think most of my career uh, has been in very structured areas like consulting, as you're aware, uh, banking and corporate banking, commercial banking. You're always wearing a suit and a tie and everything. I think I, I, I held that belief of like being, uh, you know, formally dressed uh, with the white, crisp whites, et cetera, for a really long time. As you can see, I'm not just wearing a denim shirt. So the suit that we wear today, and it's seen as like a stylish sort of statement, was actually initially intended to be a uniform. Like a decorum. Yeah. Like you maintain that decorum and not go out of that. Yeah. Uh, and now yeah. it's gone the other way. I think maybe it'll come back to that and say, oh, what do I wear? Like I'm actually, I'm not wearing suits anymore at work. Yeah. Uh, also I'm in the area, which is innovation. So, uh, it's very open in terms of culture. But sometimes I think about, it was so easy to wear a suit because five white shirts, six suits, just pick up one. It's so easy to just get dressed. Yeah. Bring a suit. Yeah. It's like one last thing to think about. Yeah. 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 So wait, so then, okay. So you, so initially you, you had your eyes on being a fighter pilot. And, and then after that, you did get a chance to go in a glider plane and you tried that out. So you don't have a passion for like flying as per, you don't, you're not, you, you don't want to go back to like flying even just for the sake of. I sometimes think about it. Yeah. Uh, and I think you and I were talking about it yesterday uh, or maybe today uh, earlier. I think I really feel that satisfaction of like a solo travel by uh, in a sailboat. Right. Yes, I, I really yeah. enjoy the sailboat. Like it's, it, it is a different experience, but I, I feel very, very content uh, while, when I'm sailing. Uh, and I told you, I think I want to have my skill set to the point where I can sail alone. Uh, right. For a long, long, for half a day, a full day. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very, I think it's, it's meditation. Yeah, I think like going on a long drive by yourself or being, or flying a fighter jet or long or, run or going on a long run, which you, okay. We should talk about running as well. And, uh, and then also, you know, either on a boat, you're sort of sailing alone on the sea, on the open sea. I think, I think it's just so meditative or even for me, like I like to go on bike rides, long bike rides or just like long walks. It's so nice and just meditative. It just like shuts everything off and you're not thinking about anything else and you're just enjoying sort of, I don't know. Is this the same case with you when you're going on these long solo sort of trips, be it walking, running, or in a car, do you notice the environment or you sort of feel like you went for like a 10 kilometer walk, but when you get home, you're like, I didn't even see anything. Yeah. I think, uh, I feel like uh, I've experienced that, uh, when I do long distance running, uh, or, or when I'm like, as I mentioned, sail, uh, or drive, or actually reading a book that I'm completely immersed in. I think if I were to say 
if I were to define what is genuine, I think that is genuine because you truly enjoy that so very much that if the physicality was not a limitation, you would just keep going on. Right. Right. Like it could also, like one of the things in the winter that I do sometimes, and maybe I picked it up from you, maybe uh, it's listening to these podcasts that I like and go for a long walk. I don't know where I am actually. I sometimes I actually forget where I am. I'm just walking. Has to be walking, not sitting. Yeah. Has to be walking. So the thoughts that you sort of, uh, you know, th- that you get immersed in, uh, I think it's it's really beautiful. Like if you can hold hold on, take a step back, and do that very regularly. Yeah, that itself is like the best way to rejuvenate yourself. That's so true, man. I totally agree. And I think the kind of jobs that we have, the kind of, you know, sometimes it can be really stressful or sometimes you just need to like think, just empty your brain and and you have to think of some creative ideas or you have to think of how do I solve that thing? And I think going on those nice meditative walks, I think that's probably the, the one thing that really helped me through the entire pandemic. Just went on these really nice long walks, sometimes 20 kilometers, sometimes 15. I remember having one with you, like we did like a 15 kilometer loop. Yeah. Uh, it's only when I went to bed that I realized that it was a very long <laughs> walk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, and, and also like Toronto has so many beautiful parks that if you sort of are on foot or on a, on a bicycle, you can really explore. And there's just so many hidden little parks, the Moore Park, which is linked to Evergreen Brickworks. We went to Evergreen Brickworks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was I think, I, think uh, I also want to say that Toronto, people in Toronto, especially in downtown, like, I think they're very inspiring. Like, you cannot miss a single season in Toronto where you won't see someone actively working out, running, cycling, uh, doing something or the other. And it's very difficult to not do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You want to get out. Uh, I think that my experience, like, throughout my, like, having been in so many cities uh, uh, in India, outside of India, I think Toronto brings that vibe. Even going to a tennis court, like, uh, on a Sunday, you have to wait for, like, 40 minutes on an eight-court, like, sort of, you know, enclosure to get a chance to play. People are, like, so active, and there's, like, a lineup that people want to, it's it's just a different energy. I think nothing can beat that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think th- I think that's something that we should also touch on is the sort of the cultural differences that we've observed being a part of you know North American culture, like especially Toronto, and then also how that cu- culturally how everything was so different when we were back in India. I think especially for people, let's say, who are listening to this, who might be let's say in India or who want to move to Canada and thinking, you know. Well, I, I want to move to Canada. I'll get a job there and, you know, everything will be great. But a lot of times that's not the case. We're going to cover that in a, in a bit. But first, I want to uh, actually uh, go back to now. I know and we went all over the place, but in terms of uh, after flying, you got into communications and you went and ex- worked with in media planning. And so how did that happen? What got you excited about media planning? To be honest, not quite a lot. It was just an opportunity where... Uh, I think my first interview was with uh, Times of India, one of the largest English dailies in the world. Uh, it was a sales role to sell spots on the newspaper. 
And I was like super excited because I also had a timeline from my parents and my my family that you have one month to get a job. If not, you're going to get an engineering job, right? You can't just be like wandering. So I got an offer from Times of India. And then someone said to me, he's like, why are you doing like spot sales? You're an engineer. You would have an understanding of numbers and crunching Excel sheets, et cetera. You should work on media planning, which involves statistics, trend analysis, et cetera. So I said, oh, I don't know what that is. And that's how I got introduced to media planning. And then I met a few people and I was very fortunate actually in Bombay. I had my friends who actually introduced me to, uh, uh, you know, sort of influential people uh, who I met with at a coffee shop. And they were like, you're a fit to, to join this, uh, the agency. And I picked up an associate role. Uh, yeah. So, so that's how I got into media planning. But key thing, I think, and, and that is true throughout my career, is my taking up the job was intentional, but the situation that I faced with in the agency or in the consulting or in the banking, I think that was exceptional because I was, I was in a situation where the agency was struggling uh, to retain people. The key accounts were sort of, you know, at the verge of being lost. And I had a chance to work with like some of the most phenomenal leaders direct one-on-one. I was an associate, so they knew I could work long hours and they were there to manage. So they wanted someone to help them go through it. You know, the whole concept of how we talk about who's a mentor, who's a coach, who's a sponsor. I think I was very lucky to sort of have sponsors who can play a role of a mentor, who can play a role of a coach and also stand, put their brand behind your name. I think I, have, I was very fortunate to like have worked with those people that they gave me a perspective that I don't think I could ever have that perspective at my level. It was at their level. Like what is the right thing to do? And when you know what the right thing to do is, can you express your work in the most genuine way and see the reaction, right? And whatever the outcome and success would be, that's one thing, but what you would learn out of it would be phenomenal. I think that to me is, 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 is the best part of any job that I would do. So when you were with, within like media planning and like you said, you had some very interesting and uh, helpful sort of mentors, coaches and sponsors, what would be, are there any like lessons or specific experiences that you have that you can recall that were sort of pivotal in who you became later on or that led you to the next thing? Do you remember, do you recall any such memories or experiences or any interesting conversation that you might have had at that time during that period, which were like, you're like, yeah, that was, or that changed your world view about, because that's probably your first job, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, I think uh, not going into specifics, but I remember uh, when I was an associate and there was an account, uh, it was a mother dairy, it's a cooperative uh in delhi which sort of you know has a range of ice creams and chocolates and you know milk and dairy products and we lost people like 
account director, account planner. We lost all of the people. And that account was obviously, in, we were about to lose it. And with whatever I learned from media planning in the three months, my, the Asia-Pacific Asia CEO who was down in Delhi from Singapore to sort of make sure everything goes smooth, he said to me, like he taught me things, and he said to me, are you confident about this plan that you're, that you're put together? I said, yeah. So, okay, now you're going to go with me and present it to the chief marketing officer of Mother Dairy. Uh, and I had no client meeting before because no one took me for a client meeting before because I was an associate. He said, do you understand the basics? Do you know why you build this plan? So now let's do and present it. I will not go into the details. You will go into details. I'll present the overview. And I presented that. And this was accepted. There were some changes, which was like acceptable, like back and forth. And then he came out of this meeting and he said, what do you learn from this? And, and I was like, I, I didn't know anything. I, I was just going with the flow. And he said, as long as you put that effort, as long as you understand the concepts, do a genuine job in sort of, you know, presenting your perspective. It could be something else. Client might not like it, but you should be confident. That is all it takes for you to make sure that you have made sure there are no errors. You have made sure conceptually it works fine. Perspectives could be different. That's all. You do not, do not see or judge the other person you're presenting to as a chief marketing officer. There is a human on the other side. You are someone with three months of experience. She's someone with 20 years of experience. Obviously, it will reflect, but you're doing a good job uh, at your level. So never, never, ever judge people or assume that someone's at the you know, super senior level that you should be intimidated. You know your job. You're in a position. You've been given a position. So you use that position to make your recommendation. I think that was that to me changed my perspective about being confident or not. What were the feelings that were initially going through your brain when he asked you to present to the client? I think I, I told my father that uh, I might have to look for another job, <laughs> and, and, and this might might be the end of media planning because if. The Asia Pacific CEO <laughs> is with me. And if I screw up, yeah. I don't think I can get a recommendation in this entire industry. So that's what, that, that was what my feeling was. But at the same time, it was three months. I was like, okay, I'd already thought what could be the next thing in my career that I would try. <laughs> <laughs> but it went on to for another two years. So it was fine. <laughs> That's an amazing story because, you know, it, it typically because we're both from sort of the Indian culture and we've both sort of experienced working in India and you don't find a lot of leadership that encourages younger talent in the, in the sense of the story that you described where he put all his faith in you and he's like, are you confident you can do it? Okay, let's do it. Yeah, I, 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 on that same account, like uh, I remember we were actually, there was a European car manufacturer that was planning to launch uh, their brand in India. And we went into a pitch kind of a meeting. They were in our office, in the agency office, and uh, my, my Asia Pacific CEO was leading that uh, meeting. And I said, uh, I said something, and I got a feedback when I came out. I said something in the meeting. I asked a question. 
And the account director or somebody said to me that you need to watch your audience. Like you can't just ask a question. And the, the CEO, the HFSF CEO actually corrected him and said, I don't accept that. If you have been invited to a meeting, which means that your opinion counts. If it didn't, you wouldn't be there. Period. That's amazing. I think I think I've I've been blessed with like people who've like given you that kind of uh, guidance. Uh, yeah. More than that, right? Like by telling you to be able to present that you can present to a, a senior person on the client side, you are kind of putting your brand behind the person, right? And that gives you so much air, the confidence that you know. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah, I think I think that also is uh about also about the culture and how the employees and team is made to feel safe in terms of they can fuck up they can make a mistake and it's okay and leadership is going to stand behind you so i think that gives you that allows you to to try more things to to take to make decisions because when decisions are being made mistakes are also being made yeah but to allow that and to sort of bring that into the culture, I think that's super critical. I think a lot of companies, you know, they struggle with, you know, because there's so much fear. Because if you can't make a mistake, you're going to fear making a mistake. And by because of that, you're not going to make enough decisions. And then, you know, that just that's like a self-fulfilling cycle where, you know, products don't ship faster. Decisions don't get made very early on in New York career like in your first job you got exposed to this kind of leadership yeah. which encouraged you which made you feel safe and allowed you to make mistakes yeah and i think that is also the reason why i never regretted not having gone into an engineering job uh because this is what i wanted to experience like business is all about people right people you work with people you sell to people you buy from if you understand that and if the fit is right, and now you know, at different levels of my career, I understand what fit means. If the fit is right, you will never be miserable in your job. I think. And if you're right. miserable, you should never be in the job. Right, yeah. You know that, that common saying that um, people say is that, you know, you don't leave a company, you leave a manager. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It's, it's, actually, it's actually, if you think about it, such a huge loss to the company, to yeah. the business, to the principles yeah. because of one person. So the fitment yeah. is, I think, really important. Yeah, I think uh, those are two, by the way, those are two really fantastic stories because when something like that happens, that firstly changes your perspective and it also makes you want to sort of pay it forward because when you were in that early stage and there were people watching your back. And as you, you know, go further down your career, you, re you realize that you're there because there were always somebody there standing behind you and saying, okay, go do this. We'll take care of it. We'll take care of things. If something goes wrong, don't worry about it. I think that that plays like such an instrumental role, especially if, if somebody like you get to work with somebody like that early in your career. And maintaining your integrity in that process of owning up that, you know, I actually screwed up. I did that. This is what my rationale was. This is what I did. I made a mistake. 
I screwed up. And here is my learning. You know, if you can contribute to that culture, that is, I think the, the, I think while it might sound like so simple and straightforward, I think people sometimes for, for right reasons, wrong reasons, forget it. Uh, but those are my best experiences, right? Like I had experiences that were not pleasant. Uh, but if I reflect on good experiences, these were the people that actually helped me shape my thought process. That was your first job, first job. And clearly you had some fantastic experiences. You got to be working side by side with some of the smartest people who were also not only just good managers, but good leaders. And they were good mentors and coaches, like you said. So why did you actually leave media planning to go pursue consulting? So I think, uh, what was your thought process the, at the time? The, I stumbled upon the opportunity accidentally, but at that time I was struggling in terms of like, you know, should I, I just started my career, right? Two years, first two years in my career, should I just be doing media planning or should I actually sort of expand my horizon and do sales? Uh, I would go for interviews to sales companies, uh, you know, how I, I was targeting telecom. Telecom was so big in our time, right? Like Vodafone and all these players were emerging and such amazing commercials that you saw, so influenced by that. I said, I, I, I want to be in sales. But they said, well, you're a planner. You can't do sales, right? Like people, people sort of stereotype you. I tried a lot to try different avenues of business uh, because I wanted to expand my horizon outside of just planning. Um, uh, and and it connects now. Uh, maybe at that time, it was just that I want to learn more, learn more different aspects. And then when I got this opportunity, it said, well, you could actually look at marketing as a whole across different channels and also be able to assess performance of a media planning agency and say, did they make the right calls in their plans? Me being a planner, now I'm judging somebody for making those plans and seeing if you did this, what did your competitors do? How did you fare against them? You might've hit your plan. You might've been phenomenal. When you compare it with others, you were actually number five among in your category. So I think that gave me a solid perspective and saying, oh, wow, this is like amazing. And that got me closer to brand management, which again, this was something that I aspire, was aspiring going into my MBA program. So first you started by making media. First, you actually started as by buying, by selling media spots. Yeah. From that, you got into media planning. Yeah. And from media planning, because of the, with the, with the right exposure, with the light, right leadership and guidance. And you're like, wait, I want to actually take a role that sort of looks at the whole thing, not just the media planning, but how, how do you measure the KPIs, the results, and how did that fare against the competitors? Yeah. And then, and then, so you had, you went from selling the actual spot to having a more macro view of what's happening in sort of that space. Yeah. And, and that also gave me uh, exposure to things like, Nelson data, for example, right? How is a TVR, which is a, a, a sort of a rating for television, just for the audience, is calculated actually? Like, what is the methodology? How right. is it done? Like, you can't just look at the number and say, this is enough. You need to know beyond what is the methodology. How do you compare? 
right? Yeah. So that yeah. started getting into like the data piece of it, which is very powerful, right? Yeah. You could have a very skewed data because of the sample size. So how does sample size play a role? Uh, all of those nuances when you're, this happens when you're assessing a performance of a marketing plan. You go yeah. beyond that. You can't just say you didn't do a great job, but you go beyond that, right? And say things like, okay, here are the technical aspects, considerations, you know, we should not get into this or we should, uh, you know, here's a backstory to that, et cetera. That gave me that exposure, right? And, and I want to make that point uh, and maybe we can touch upon that later as well. The reason now I understand why I wanted to get out of media planning into consulting and from consulting, I just left and did my MBA. I think it's because deep down, I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist. Specialization sort of suffocates me at different level. I did not know that when I was making those decisions, but when I reflect back, I know it. Because now I've come to that in my career at that stage where I'm close to being a specialist somewhere, right? What would that be? I can't just be a generalist all my life. I have to maybe sort of go in deep, deep down. But I think at that point, the curiosity of knowing more, knowing more, that if tomorrow this is my career, I should have made an a informed decision based on my curiosity of what all exists that I'm choosing from. So that was the, that was the, that was the element of my personality, I think, which now, because like, you know, I've got some education, I can like put words to it, et cetera. But then that was what I was feeling. So that also, also kind of like, when I talk to talk about this to my father, his question is, then would you have been successful as a fighter pilot? Because that's one job that you have, wear your gear, sit in the cockpit, and just go. Would that have made you uh, happy? And I don't know, because I think generalist specialist could be one thing, but this passion that can sort of, over, sort of override all of these elements. Being a fighter pilot would have been very thrilling, uh, would, would have been like very exciting, but I don't know how intellectually stimulating it might have been. I mean, of course, it, was, it would require all your focus, your full body focus to fly yeah. something that almost travels at the speed of sound. But I think the, the way you sort of describe, I mean, now that you look back and you see the dots connecting and you're like, okay, wait, I actually pursued my curiosity. I was like, wait, how did I do this? I want to learn more about this. I would want to actually, and then you sort of took that path versus having sort of a very linear that, you know, you're sort of predecided that. Oh, I want to do this. Exactly. It was more like, oh, this seems re really interesting. I'm so curious about how they do this. So let me go try it. And from ad spot, now you're sort of looking at examining plans. You're measuring KPIs. You're looking at results. You're looking at Nelson data. And I remember from those days, they were like, yeah, so we have, uh, you know, these set top boxes in like these number of houses. So we extrapolate the data. And I was like, what is extrapolate the data? They're like, yeah, we just use this sample size of like <laughs> 10 people to judge the country. <laughs> it was true in some cases. Funny story, funny story. I'm, I'm working on a lifestyle brand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I am trying to figure out the benchmark of what exists in India today that I can actually see what the customer response is. 
Yeah. And I, and I pick up Lacoste as a brand. This is 2007. Lacoste in India at that time existed in Delhi and Bombay uh, and in some other cities, right? And I do a country survey as to what people's perception is about Lacoste. And I saw these smallest towns saying, I love it. It's my favorite brand. Something like that. And I was like, okay, I want to drill down into this, this area. There's no Lacoste showroom in the next neighboring five states. How does this guy know about Lacoste? Right? And then I had to do a deep dive into it and found out that there were these gray market, um, not original Lacoste that was sold for like $2. Um, and, and then you're like, okay, I can't look at this data. <laughs> I mean, I cannot recommend anything on the data. But those were early days when data was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you brought up such a good point. Actually, there's three things that you brought up which are so... And I, by the way, is this the time that I, I was also at Lintas with yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is because I was also in media planning. Yeah, but I was working with Premjit Sodhi. Yeah, yeah. Who was the who was the head of media planning? That's where I, I spent yeah. uh, time on the uh, Maruti Suzuki account. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. That's where you used to hang out in the staircase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think you know, actually, I remember uh, talking to some some of the very like really bright minds in planning came from like top schools, and again. I didn't have any formal education in uh, business or marketing. Yeah. And their passion, when you see their passion about a plan and you're like, oh my God, like this person is like, must be right. Because he or she's so passionate about it. I was like, okay, I'll maybe try and follow this template. Like, you know, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> I think, I think amazing talent yeah. uh, in advertising. <laughs> uh, I was just, again, like you sort of curious about how things work and how the whole business works. The business side of things, uh, even though as my career path has been creative, and even though a lot of people have told me that, Paul, you're not creative, I'm like, okay. Anyway, so I think the point that you made, one was that even back then, there was emphasis, there was always emphasis on data. Yeah. And it's like 10 years later, like data became like the trendy thing. Oh, data. It's like, no, we were always looking at data. And then also understanding that data is a representation of the past, not the future. Number three, number, number two, as human beings, most of us don't have basic numeracy. We don't understand, you know, averages or, you know, how the, the data is collected and how it can be so biased. Like you pointed out that you, you're getting some sort of a signal that's saying that, you know, there are people in this region of India. And by the way, for the audience listening back then, we barely had any internet. This was like, this is a long time ago. We're like two old guys now. Yeah, absolutely. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> You've got some grace. <laughs> oh my God. So internet was not that predominant. I think at that time, I probably had like a, a Sony uh, uh, P990, uh, which was like a touchscreen with a... Yeah, I had a Nokia 660, 6600. It was like oh, this oldish, the, the black, yeah, yeah, yeah. black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, that, that Nokia phone was amazing. Although during that time, my favorite is the Moto Razr. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the titanium phone. Mm -hmm. I think even if it comes back today, it'll be trendy. Like, I, love I, I was, I, by the way, I was never a fan of the Moto Razr, but I did like, I was a big fan of Nokia at the time. Uh, but anyway, sorry, going back, I don't want to 
<laughs> get us off track again. But uh, at the time, so one was that they, there was data was being looked at. They were what they were doing research. They were looking into customers. It's it's not something that just came out of thin air when you know digital and product sort of came to the scene. Yeah, they literally took people who were in marketing, advertising, graphic designers. A lot of them moved over, and they brought some of that learning and frameworks to sort of the kind of work that we do even today. Um, so anyways, it, it, so one is that it, it was important to first know, you know, where the data is coming from. What is the data really saying? Because like I heard some really uh, fun story on the Tim Ferriss uh, podcast, and they were talking about averages. Let's say there's a restaurant and in the restaurant, there's 30 people and the, and you do an average and you're like, okay, the average salary income or sorry, the average net worth of the people in this room is 10 million. But then 15 minutes later, one person leaves that restaurant and Jeff Bezos comes into the room. Now the average yeah. net worth Skewed. is exactly. Yeah. So I think a lot of people say that we, we have we make a lot of data informed decisions and all that stuff. But I think it's really important to understand that data First, obviously, is a representation of the past, not the future. So when you're making creative decisions, you can't really play too much emphasis on the past data. And then two, how you want to portray and express that data is also in the hands of the storyteller, of the person who's interpreting that data. So I think it's, I, I don't know, I, I, I feel, I'm just a little bit more passionate about that data piece. Yeah, no, I think, I think... Uh some of the large institutions that I have worked for or at, they have enormous data, right? Enormous customer data. And oftentimes you see that, first of all, the institutions do not really know what to do with the data, right? How to look at it. Are you looking at one perspective of the data? Have you covered all the other perspectives of the data? I think it's very difficult to right? Like it's massive data. If you're looking at transaction data, it's like, like that's, that's very difficult. So I think you rightly said that your past is good to understand what happened. But when you look at past, you shouldn't look at past of like five years. Look at past of 20 years then. Bake in like recession, bake in like interest rate changes, bake in everything that has hurt or uh, boosted the uh, market sentiment. Right. And then you see what happened to your deposits or what happened to your shopping and buying uh, power. Right. And that is very important from a historical perspective. And then, but in the age of disruption, you don't have a lot of history to tell you what the future is going to be. It's important to know the history, not miss it out. But the future, you require more than just the data interpretation, you need to understand where the pulse is at from a customer perspective. Like, you know, sometimes being in the new product development, customers, the traditional way of looking at product is like, hey, can you do a customer survey and say, do the customers really need this service? Well, if you did that, I don't know how many products would come in with disruption because customers don't really know what is out there for them to make an opinion. It's you got to test it out, right? You got to present it to them and see if they use it. A, a, a mobile wallet is a fine example. Like, I don't know what the use case was when it actually first time came in and how was, what was the acceptance. 
but it solves a clear problem, right? And so your customer will tell you if they like it or not, and you can obviously improve on it or you can shut it down. But looking at the history, how much can you learn from that to say that a customer is going to accept a wallet? Yeah, so I think there's a fine line between uh, like, you know, how much could you rely on research versus actually testing it in the market? That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, in fact, it's like, what's that like Henry Ford quote? He's like, you know, if I ask people what they wanted, they would say, oh, I want a faster horse. Right. True. And, and it's like a lot of people don't know what they want. And so as a, as a, as a designer or as a marketing person or somebody who is building a product, you have to sort of look underneath what they're saying. What is the meaning behind what they're saying? All these technologies from telephone to cars, to mobile phones, internet. So there's like this interview of Bill Gates sitting at, at David on David Letterman's show. And he's like, so tell us what is this internet thing? And at that time, by just watching that one interview, you can, you can plug into that sentiment of that time that people didn't think of internet as, as ubiquitous as it is today, yeah. that it's so prevalent. But yeah, initially humans resist change, even though it might be better for them. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the, that's the story with disruption, right? Yeah. Uh, both for the organizations, even organizations or the, or the players in the ecosystem would resist that yeah. uh, until a point where there's a clear value yeah. and that you want to adopt it. So, so I, true, think, I think they've done a great job in, like, in today's world where there's so much disruption that's happening across all industries. Um, and, 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 uh, and I think many organizations, large organizations, organizations that have existed for donkey years, they have a division or group that's looking into that and being open about it. So any, again, any experiences or any, any, you know, conversations or experiences that come to mind that sort of, again, you know, influenced you or, you know, or led you to the next thing that you wanted to do uh, while you were at consulting? I think uh, in consulting, uh, those were really intense days of my career, 16, 15, 16 hours a day on an average. Uh, I was, uh, you know, 25, 26. It, it, was, it was really intense. But I think one of the most important experiences was I went to this, um, there was a, a, a sort of a training course uh, for Asia Pacific. We went to Malaysia for two weeks. This was eight hours of strict classroom training, going through courses, going through, uh, you know, content that would sort of, you know, educate you in consulting. And they had people from Australia, India, um, you know, Korea, uh, China, all of those regions. And one of the smartest people that I met. And this is the first time I was amongst non-Indians in the business world. And we had presentations, etc. I think it gave me the confidence to be able to exist in a diverse setting, mind you. Uh, you know, I have a turban, I'm a visible minority. I am kind of conscious because I am a visible minority even in India, in my own country, right? That's true. Department school, the only guy wearing a turban. Um, so to me, going abroad and being not just an Indian, one of the India, uh, Indians, but also amongst Asians, uh, Asia Pacific, it was a big deal. 
But do you want to, sorry, do you want to dive a little bit deeper into that? That even in India, a Sikh, like for the audience, especially listening, especially for the North American audience who might not fully have the context, like what it is like to be a Sikh person in India and what that looks like. So, yeah, I, I mean, just an example, as a kid, uh, I went to a convent school and uh, it was a all boys school until grade five from grade one until grade five i was the only turban wearing sick right so i had nobody who uh, who looked like me uh good and bad because obviously you know yeah you know my uh, you know visual appearances you know how do i get comfortable with that good because i actually never felt that i was different because no one actually made me feel that way right like uh, uh so i think i think except when we had these uh, uh moral science classes where uh, you know the catholics went to the church and the non catholics just chilled out like in a, in a classroom setting that was the only distinction uh, and i i, I remember my when i was a kid in grade 3 telling my cousin my cousin said who are who are christians i said christians are people who go to the church because that's what i know right that's all i know right but i had a lot of christian friends and uh uh so so i think yeah uh, that's that's the context like you know uh, being a visible minority especially in bombay right uh, there'll be the, 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 there'll be a lot of sikhs in the state of punjab which is predominantly sikhs But yeah if it's if you're looking at bombay delhi delhi too because it's close to punjab but bombay being in the west uh it's it's very rare to see people live in the business setting right like especially turban wearing six yeah so, that's true so yeah so i think I, i grew up with that and so when people talk about diversity here and i feel like while i come from india uh it's it's a country it's a secular country and you know a lot of religions exist but from a visible perspective visible minority perspective i think sikhs are visible minority in in their own country it's very easy to identify a sikh the turban wearing sikh is still a visible minority even yeah. in bombay in india yeah for you because you grew up in bombay and when you transitioned over to toronto i guess for you not a lot changed correct yeah i think uh, because of that experience i mentioned to you in malaysia i got the confidence that actually it was pretty cool like i actually felt great and I, i think one i remember one specific incidents where i think a first time ever this was my like first six months in accenture i worked with a lot of people internationally but in the first six months first time ever i have i was having a conversation with a caucasian person okay i've never spoken like i've never had an interaction and the first conversation is about cricket and they asked me directly about what do you think of sachin tendulkar and i was like oh my god i have to defend this and then i get into a conversation it was such a great discussion because i knew the australian team very well they knew the indian team very well and then i was like oh you could actually have common conversations you could have common points of interaction and from there on i think i think i i also met indians from australia indians from singapore uh it was a phenomenal experience and and one of my best friend she's from korea 
Uh, she's still in Korea, but we keep in touch. She was at Accenture there. That gave me the confidence that, you know, I actually can go and study anywhere in the world. And that's, that was one of the reasons why I decided I'm not going to do an MBA in India. I'm going to go abroad. Right, 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 right. That was the point where I made the decision after I wrote my GMAT exam. I think a lot of people, especially who are from North America, who would be maybe listening to this podcast, when you grew up in India, you don't necessarily are sitting next to somebody from a different country. Whereas, you know, when you grew up in Canada, and I've also gone to school in Canada, and now that I work in downtown Toronto, you are sitting next to people who are from all over the world. Whereas when you're growing up in India, most of the people in your school, uh, especially if you're in a smaller city, if you're, I mean, of course, if you're in like Bombay, you still have people from different states of India. Right. But there's not a huge population of international students. And, and then when you get into the work culture, of course, there's a few international employees from different parts of the world, but that's still very small. Yeah, percentage-wise. Uh, today, you might have more. Yeah, uh, because of the you know globalization and India becoming a very important yeah. economy. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, predominantly. But okay, so coming back to the point where, so you 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 weren't consulting, um, and so you were talking about your experience in in the consulting environment, and you were working 15, 16 hours a day. It was pretty intense, and you were like 25 years old. So what what happened at that point? I think it sort of uh, built that resilience, right? of long working long hours uh still being accurate or still being uh, like on the point uh being sync sharp uh, endurance all of that i think that built that um uh, and if someone said that you know it's funny people ask are you hard working and i was like how do i say that <laughs> <laughs> right like like i think to me that is the only example i have like oh yeah like 16 hours a day and maybe the 17th hour i might still get a call from my partner asking a question about a presentation or a number or an insight that I wrote in a deck, which is 60 pages long. Um, I think that was, to me, I was the, the regiment, the structure, the discipline is what I learned in consulting, period. Like you cannot get that kind of uh, discipline in any other area. Of course, you can build that on your own, but as a 24, 25 year old uh, individual, professional, that experience was really formidable for me to say, okay, this is how you approach your work. This is how you work uh, around something, uh, you know, and how do you stay on it, et cetera. So I think, yeah, that's, so 60 to 80 hours a week uh, was very easy. Like yeah. 60 hours, I think would be on a lighter side um, where I could like have fun too. Uh, 80 hours was very common. So two things. One is, do you somehow feel that what you might have, you were still sort of craving being a fighter pilot because of that discipline, that regiment, that hard work. And then I think something that I've observed about people in like the, in the, in these fields, they have like this polish and finesse, the way they stand, you know, their posture, the way they communicate, the way they speak. You're actually right. So when I was in advertising, I felt that the discipline, whether it's the, the way you dressed up or the hours you followed, the business hours, it was, it was not structured. And to me, it threw me off. Coming from engineering, you know, you wanted like some structure. In consulting, 
you always dressed up and that became a second nature so that's taken care of you're well dressed okay anytime you have to meet a client you can do that uh and then the focus on refining your work getting to that point where the deck looks sexy right that's that's what the partners are looking for a sexy deck for a pitch right no errors nothing <laughs> i remember i i once i came back uh i was at home <laughs> this was at 11 o'clock in the night and there was a pitch that was coming up and we had sent the pre-mail a week in advance and my partner calls me and says hey uh do you have a second and i'm like sleeping and i'm like yeah sure and then i open the laptop and like can you go to slide number 16 on this deck can you check this number for me are you sure this is correct this has been a month in making right this deck 80 page deck reference from that slide 16 goes into many slides and the pre-mail has been sent and the partner is prepping for the pitch right and i'm not able to breathe what like time of the day was this midnight midnight okay and i'm like can i call you back and uh she said no i'll be on the call why don't you like we can talk when you're ready and my heart is pounding and i'm opening the deck looking at that number opening the excel sheet which was my working sheet and i check it and i said yeah this number is right it's like okay that's it thank you i just wanted to check <laughs> so to me <laughs> i don't know if it was dude like my i like i was feeling like my i like my breath i was choking <laughs> listening to this story yeah. and i was like okay that's it yeah that's it see you in the pitch i was like okay it it was phenomenal i think i think i think people might view this differently i think at least for me i needed that structure and then from there and i know maybe you want to jump on that when i went to to do my mba i brought that structure and kind of you know helped me sort of you know uh survive through the mba program which was again filled with international students people had different disciplines there was a common currency right that everybody had that discipline to do projects to do presentations etc uh, of course i learned quite a lot in the mba program there was phenomenal people with amazing backgrounds uh but i think i think the consulting experience helped me quite a lot even even to the point where when i was building my resume during the mba program i could use that right like that that kind of structure what should be there in my resume nothing more nothing less what is my accomplishment what is the context what is the action what is the result period no more no less right and uh, yeah i think i think it was it was brilliant another thing that i would say is that because now we were both working in north america is that it's like the the whole like work life balance that's such like a north american thing in india nobody cares yeah and you're think- just working all the time and i mean if you have like a nice manager or a boss sure you might get some leniency you might be a little bit better but the amount of work people are doing there's no sense of entitlement also that's also like a culturally i think a very different thing that i've observed spending like 20 20 plus years in India versus 10 plus years in Canada is that sense of entitlement that work life balance and there's is there is like this no i have to work hard to get to there's not like oh i deserve this 
maybe like the newer generation that's coming now, they are sort of, uh, you know, they have a much more closer, they're more closer to what a North American uh, kid might be like. But back in our generation, it was just like, work hard. That's it. Yeah. And I think uh, also uh, like, you know, in the banking, uh, a lot of people sort of, you know, have that notion that it's nine to five. A lot of people ask me that, you know, when I'm like mentoring or talking to people, having conversations, coffee chats, like, so how's the work life? Like, how's the, you work from nine to five? I said, maybe there are areas that require nine to five, but I haven't been in those areas because I think it's not about nine to five. It could be eight to four. It could be eight to three. It could be eight to eight. Depends on what you're doing. Depends on what you're working on. What is your responsibility and how much time it takes you to complete that? If you're very efficient, you know, you might be able to get that job done in like three hours, four hours and you can chill. I mean, you know, what I'm trying to say is it, everybody has a different learning curve. It, the amount of time it takes for them to perform a job. You don't measure those performance of those jobs from nine to five. You measure it and what is your accomplishment in the task that you've been given. If you focus on that, I think you're right, actually. When I came from here, I was like, okay, I have to work longer. I have to stay at least beyond my manager in the office. He cannot see me go leave for, for home, right? Whatever might be the reason. And uh, I think I've learned that I think it's a common currency across the world. You have a job, you get it done, doesn't matter. Now, of course, some people are sticklers and some managers want you to be in the office for this time. But I have never had this job. I've been very fortunate that people have been, my managers, my, my, my leaders have been very objective from that perspective. Two things for sure. One is set the vision of the project or the thing that needs to be done and let the team figure out how to do it. Exactly. Don't need to micromanage them. Focus on... Are they giving you results? Great. How they get it done, whether they work two hours, one hour, or eight hours. As long as they're hitting the deadline, they're doing great work, which was outlined at the beginning. I don't care. Like I'm I'm like I'm the kind of person who's like very hands-off when it comes to like guiding and working with teams. It should just be focused on the output and the results. That's it. I think uh and, and just to like maybe add an, uh something in there. You want to set the objective, the vision, the objective, and let the person who's been tasked to do that job figure out how to do it because you're not developing them. Bang on. I right? totally agree. If you tell them how yeah. to do it, yeah, 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 how yeah. will they know yeah, yeah. how else could it be done? That is so spot on, man. I right. think, and maybe they have a better way of doing it. Yeah. And you can learn from them. I think I think one of my one of my my, my key mentor uh, uh, at in my current organization clearly makes that distinction of keeping the brief very clear, but how do you achieve that brief is up to you, and you could keep improving that as you see fit because if you don't do it yourself, you would never develop. I think that's really important. I, that's a luxury, I think. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that sort of philosophy and sentiment and sort of that approach to leadership is that you don't micromanage people and you, you know, like that, that saying that teach the person to fish versus, you know, give them the fish. Yeah. And so I, so that's definitely, I totally align with you. I agree with you that 
the only way they can learn is if they struggle and apply their thinking. They apply critical thinking and figure, try to figure out, okay, how will I solve this? And you let them know that if you're struggling, you can't figure it out, come to me. Yeah. I'll help you. Yeah. But still don't give them the answer. No. Give them the feedback. Yeah. Give them the feedback. Feedback that it's not, and be honest. Yeah. Do, do not, like, I see a lot of times, uh, especially in the Canadian context, and mind you, like, Canadians are lovely people and they don't want to really sound critical or rude or harsh. Uh, what happens in that is like you end up missing giving critical feedback. That critical feedback that can actually make you stop speculating what might have gone wrong in my submission. Right? <laughs> Instead, so... <laughs> you know what went wrong. <laughs> Right? So you can not stop speculating and focus on that area and then make it better. <laughs> you know what comes to mind why I'm laughing is because when I was in India and uh, culturally, it's like if I'm working on something, my partner would just come across, you know, if he comes across to my desk and he's like, he, he sees my screen and he sees me like making something, he'll be like, what the fuck is this? And just by saying that, I know what I'm doing is not on point. And there's no further explanation required. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Whereas this is, this is when you're running a business, right? And when I was, when I was, agency. and we had that sort of very cat, like that radical candor. Yeah. Where we could express and get to the point. Whereas in the sort of the North American context, you have to apply like the sandwich approach where you're like, oh, you're doing an amazing job. And why don't we explore this a little bit more like this? And so you're very gentle with the feedback. And even when I was, let's say, working in Bombay, my, I remember my boss, Rahul Jori, who was like the national creative director at that time. He would just look at me like, this is shit. And it's like, he just cuts through and just no way you're not, you're not wasting time. Yeah. And, but there is that trust yeah. that it's not about me, that what I'm doing right now, this is not making sense. Yeah. And that also builds res res resilience in, in the person who's, ex uh, ex you know, accepting the feedback that, okay, yeah. I got to go back and do it. Not being oversensitive or being raised to be very oversensitive about a feedback and like, you know, gets completely thrashed. Actually funny, uh, just two days ago, my boss, um, uh, he gave me a feedback. He's, I did this deck, you know, it was a three pager and I wanted to like hit it like in this three pages. And uh, I, I, I thought I did a good job and polished and like very good. I said, hey, can you read it and give me some feedback? He's like, he was leaving. Uh, for the day and he's like I read the deck looks fine I don't know I'm not feeling it and he, he said <laughs> maybe it's fine maybe I'm overthinking but I don't feel it I know everything is there but I don't feel it and he left I was so embarrassed with that with that feedback because I knew the content I knew everything maybe I was not focused enough to make sure that the key point is being reflected mind you I actually spent an hour on that again just to change one of the two key messages. And then when you read that with the context, it became clear. And I told my boss, I was like, I was actually very embarrassed that I got the feedback on a content that I'm really, I know it. Right? But you could miss it. You could be in a different frame. You could be thinking about something different. You could be not, you know, I think one of your uh, sort of content that you uh, posted and published, you say, it's important to read the audience, right? Maybe I did not read the audience. Maybe he saw somebody else in the audience. I saw somebody else in the audience. That's where the difference was. But that thing that he, he mentioned, he did not hesitate 
at 5.30 in the evening saying that, I don't know, uh, uh, it looks great, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think th- there's, there's definitely this muscle. It's like a muscle and a skill that you develop is yeah. to, when somebody gives you feedback, how to handle it and to detach it from yourself. I mean, of course, unless you have like an atrocious manager and like a horrible boss who criticizes you, right? And makes it personal. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you can, you can, you, and as, as human beings, we're intelligent enough to know that this person actually cares about me and they want me to improve and they're actually being critiqued about the work, not about you. And I think that's a, that's a big skill that, that is so crucial across the board, whether you're working in a bank or you're working in an agency or you're working in consulting. And, and let the feedback come and move on. Like, don't get hung up with like, oh, you know, what did this person say? And then keep thinking about it for like a week. Like, I've just sort of learned to detach myself. I'm like super, it's like strong opinions held loosely. So it's like, very well you're said. very passionate about the work, but you're also like, I don't care. And that gives you like that sweet spot of like, you put in your heart and sweat into it. But if it doesn't work, it's okay. I think that's a very important point. And uh, I remember when, you know, at TD Bank, for the first half of my career has been spent on like structured areas, like, you know, commercial, corporate credit, um, uh, bank, being a banker, like, you know, having a portfolio, risk management and all that stuff. And, and going into product management, where, you know, you mentioned this thing, uh, my first presentation that I'm working on, uh, it's due on a Friday and the Thursday and I show it to my boss um, and he's like, he looks at the presentation and he's like, uh, okay, one second. He goes in, he calls the VP that we are supposed to present, comes back, he's like, we can't, we are not prepared for the meeting tomorrow. Uh, this deck wouldn't do. I was so heartbroken because I came from a culture where I had a book, I had clients who respected me. I was an advisor. I said to them, how do you like do what you need to do? I had a portfolio, I had somebody who, uh, you know, an admin assistant who did all the work and I, I had a team, right? Like I, I was, I was so heartbroken. And so, so, he, so basically the presentation got canceled because I did not do a great job and it was not ready. Saturday, Sunday, I sat at a Starbucks and redid it, redid it. Monday, Sunday night, I sent it. And my boss saw it on Monday and he's like, I see you've put in hard work. I see that you've moved from Thursday to Sunday quite a lot on your own, but this still wouldn't do it. And to me at that point, I thought I made a mistake and I, the job that I took, maybe I'm not fit for product management because in product management, what I was learning through that was how important it's to have a clear narrative. What is your narrative and what are you asking for? Or are you leaving it for, the, for your executive to figure out what is the ask here or what's the interpretation here? I couldn't get it. I did had to do it so many times. It was one of the toughest part of my career getting into product management and not being able to perform at the level that I performed in consulting, performed in, as a banker. And I had a manager who was very tough. It was very tough on me. He like was 
a, a sort of a strickler in terms of how the decks need to look like. And I think I, I, at the end, I learned quite a lot. Like, people might say that, hey, get rid of the decks. Okay, fine. There's an argument. How much do you want to spend time? Forget the decks. Do you know how to tell your story? It could be a scribble on your uh, uh, sort of a page. But do you know how to say it? You would only know it when you've gone through the grind of coming to a point where you're clearly saying, I don't have 20 things to say in one slide. I just have two things that I want, want you to take away because this is my message and here's my ask. I think that was fantastic. 18 months, I think I was very miserable. For the first 18 months. So hold on. So for the, for the audience listening, so... So you, so after being on this incredible journey and you were pursuing your curiosity and you went from media planning, advertising, consulting, and you also at some point, you know, were very curious about being a fighter jet pilot. And you, I think there is this craving from your side where you like the discipline, you like sort of a routine, a regiment, and you like the um, idea of structure. And working within those parameters with other smart and intelligent people. And you got very, you got exposed to some very good leaders and managers and mentors in your career. So now you took all the, all of that experience that you had in India and you moved to Canada, you got into an MBA program and you were exposed to very different people from different countries, different backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds. And there was a diversity of thought. And from there, you got into uh, the bank. That was your first job? Yeah, I mean, I never thought I'd be in a bank, uh, to be honest. Uh, not at all. At least for most of my MBA program, I was not even targeting banks. Uh, I wanted to get into brand management because I, that was the rhythm I was coming with. Uh, but then I also realized that the Canadian market is a little different where a lot of brand management at the strategy level, which I was very interested in, happened in the U.S., Right. And so uh, there's a different skill set required. And maybe it was not a fit for me. I tried. I, I interviewed with major companies into their final rounds. I couldn't make it into that. And I then rethought about it. I was like, what is it I'm trying to do? Am I passionate about brand management or am I passionate about business? Mm. So, and if that's the case, then I should get into banking which is a bigger industry in Canada, biggest industry in Canada, one of the biggest, and start from learning how a bank makes money. If you understand how the bank makes money, then you sort of have that foundation of that industry and then you sort of start thinking about, okay, what else do you want to do? Do you want to continue doing this? Do you want to be a specialist, generalist? You can bring all of that, but put your head down and just understand what is risk? What is an interest rate? How does it work? How do we make money? How do we assess risk management? All those fundamentals. Even today, when, when, when you know the discussions on blockchain and discussions on crypto, and people talk about banks and banks being the intermediary and, and how they're so powerful, etc. What I'm missing in those narratives is like, do you exhibit a clear understanding of what banks' role is? If you do, then your opinion, perspectives matter. If you don't, then you're missing the point. 
Such a good point. I totally agree. Yeah. So, so I think four years, four and a half years of like banking, core, core banking, commercial banking that I did in Canada, uh, that taught me quite a lot. Uh, but also at the point where I reached, where I said, okay, coming back to, that's when I actually articulated why I never stuck to one stream of business is because I don't want to be a specialist. I don't want to be a banker all my life. Uh, I want to be able to do other things like product management and innovation, et cetera. But the common theme that remained, which I think will remain, uh, is being customer-centric, customer-focused. All my career, like consulting, direct one-to-one, media planning, focus on that. Banking, I have a portfolio of clients. And product management, where you make one change and it impacts millions of customers. Holy shit. Right? So it's been very customer-focused, customer-centric. Yeah. I think that I'm, I think I'm starting to understand that, that being customers, the customer-centricity element of the business, it what appeals to me the most, whether I learn it from a structure and foundation of the business or innovation, of, innovation part of the business. So, wow. Yeah. I, you know what? Okay, so three things. One is the knowing how your client or your employer makes money is one thing that everybody should do. Because once you know how your client makes money, whether you are a creative person working in an agency or you're anybody working in an agency and you're client facing till the time you don't know how your client makes money or how your employer makes money. Firstly, you don't know how to ladder yourself up for a promotion because you don't know what the work you're doing is leading to revenue. Right or the top line, or right. how it affects bottom line. And then if you're working in an agency, if you don't know how the work that you're doing for them, be it making social media ads, or you're doing product design, whatever that thing you're doing, if you don't know how that's connected to the business side of things, you're never going to climb. So that's, I totally agree with that point, number one. Number two, now you've had like a very uh, long, like a decade-long career with yeah with the bank yeah. and you've had multiple roles. I know that, you know, you talked about, you know, you were sort of in the lending space as well earlier on. Yes. Um, so we, I want to touch on some of those stories. Let's talk a little bit about sort of where you sort of came in the bank. What kind of experiences did you have uh, and what did you learn along? So maybe what you do is you divide up the 10 years or however you want to do it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think if I were to divide my career at, at TD Bank, the first half, as I mentioned, is how the bank makes money how you run a business, how you, how you run a business. In that, uh, initially, I, in total, I've done like six roles at the bank over 10 years. First three roles in commercial banking where I'm underwriting loans and sort of money out, right? Like to the co- companies, et cetera. Uh, so that was my first three, four years. The next uh, one and a half year was focused on money in which is deposit on the personal banking side of the business where I did product management. So now I know how we make money on when we, when we uh, lend the money and how we make money on when we uh, have deposit coming in. How, how does the bank make money? So the first five years is let's divide it. Let's, uh, let's, target, let's call it run the bank. Right, right, the right, right. Once I did that, can you also just like, if you, if it's okay to tell a little bit about like, how does that bank actually make money? Like one example. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's about, uh, there are elements, right? Like it's all about risk 
and uh, the risk and reward, right? Like in terms of if you have a strong customer, strong balance sheet, strong history that the model spits out like a rating, which is like you're a solid uh, customer, then obviously the bank sort of, you know, has more confidence and the probability of default for you to return the money to the bank is low. Your credit risk analysis sort of. Yeah, so the, your credit, right. credit worthiness yeah. is high versus low. Right. If it's high, obviously the bank sort of, you know, has a different interest rate, uh, di- a different profile, risk profile altogether. And if it's, if it's on, the, on a higher side where your risk is high, your credit worthiness is low, but you still fit in the sort of the norm of the bank that, uh, you know, based on every bank's risk appetite, then you're paying a higher interest rate. Right, right. That's to, that's primarily when you look at it from an overall business, overall book of the bank. Right, they do that assessment. Right, they have the assets that they have lent the money on. Yeah, right. The money's out. How? What is the quality of that asset? Right, because at the end, all of this gets contributed to rating of the bank. Right, how good is your asset quality? Right, right, right. right. So what kind of customers? What's the quality of customers? Right, so, right. So, so that's 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 the sort of the high level of like uh, amazing. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. when you understand how treasury of uh, the bank uh, looks at deposit, for example. So you have deposit. Uh, you have so much deposit that you know you know sort of you know, you have through so many millions of customers. You don't have any. Uh, you don't have. Let's say these, these deposits are not backed by any interest rates. Right. So you're just having the deposit. So it's how do you figure out how much of that deposit is sticky? How much is not? Right. right? How do you look at that? You, a lot of statistics go behind it. And then obviously the bank has that money. How does a bank make money on the money that bank has? Right. And so, yet being liquid, for example, if you have money in your checking account, you can go and get money out anytime you want. But how does a bank make, make that assessment that, what is the probability that Paul's going to withdraw 13 times, 14 times a year from his, de- from his uh, deposit account, right? So things like wow. that go in. Yeah, and, and there's a huge implication in terms of how then banks make determination of how to invest um, right, and make money on that. So essentially, one of the things that they do is like, okay, if you keep $5,000 in your account, you know, you will get, your credit card is free. You will have no checking account fee. So that's like one way to keep the stickiness. Yeah. And stickiness and, and the profitability at the end. Right. The banks are, I mean, the banks are most importantly in the business of trust, but they're also there to make money. Right. So yeah. the profitability depends on how much deposit uh, that they have that they consider sticky from you. You're absolutely right though. Like that's, that's one of the motivations for a customer to have at least a minimum balance in the account. I do also know that, you know, the, the moment you give the bank money, all the, the money that they have, they, I think it's like, they lend out that money at the multiple of 10 of what is, or, or something like that. Yeah. It all depends on the risk appetite of each bank. And ah. it also is determined by regulators, de- determined by the government, a lot of roles, right? Like come into play, uh, how much of it can be invested, how much of it can, has to be liquid, et cetera. Right. Uh, very, like it's, it's, it's a, it's I think the financial services industry in terms of the mechanics has been in existence for a really long time. So that first half, you're sort of learning about how the bank makes money, running the bank, as you said, right? And so now you have learned what, they, what happens when a deposit comes in, what's the stickiness of that money that's sitting in the bank. 
And then also how uh, they lend out that money based on the risk appetite and sort of the regulatory body around it and all that stuff. What happens next? So what, what's happening in that period when you're sort of in that phase where you're, I think you're also talking about is lending in part of that same phase? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's commercial lending. So do you want to talk a little bit about, without giving any like specific names or anything, like what kind of lending were you into and what was happening and what were you learning in that period? Yeah, I think uh, uh, it was great because if you think about the Canadian economy, it is made up of uh, mid-sized businesses, right? Uh, what you call as a mid-market. Uh, you could have uh, a pizza pizza store that has like 20 locations, 25 locations, and you're like the house bank for all those 25 locations. You could have an energy company that has like billions of dollars in their deposit uh, as your customer. So you... Uh, you could have a construction company. So you, you touch upon diverse industries and through that you understand how each of those industries actually make money, right? And after some time, like, you know, after you spend some time, you, when you talk about, let's say, you know, a dental practice. Okay, there's a dental practice acquisition that's happening. Someone tells you it's going on for the multiple of three times of uh, EBITDA or top line, et cetera it starts ringing to you that that makes sense. That doesn't make sense. That's a bit too high. It's a bit too low, right? That starts, you start understanding businesses from that perspective. Very powerful, very powerful. When, when someone consults you and sort of, you know, asks you this question about, oh, I'm buying this business. Um, like it's, uh, it's three times a multiple or four times a multiple. And the rationale is because there's so much competition. Fair. And that, goes with the real estate as well, right? If you're buying a real estate investment. But the point you have to answer is, the question that you have to answer is, that's fair. It might be the fair market value of what's the market's condition at this point. But you're buying this as a business, which means you expect this to be profitable, which means you expect cash flow. Do you think it will cash flow if you spend so much money on this business? Same with the property. You bought this property, which is worth a million, and now it's gone to 1.75 in six months. Will you make that much rent from the property? It's the same mechanics, right? Like, so you learn so much, you understand so much. I think without even being a specialist, your perspective completely changes. Right. Right? Like, uh, at one point, one of my friends was like, you know, he's like, let's do something. Let's do something on our own. Uh, let's open a pizza store. Let's get a franchisee from a known person. I was like, okay, fine. Tell me how, how, how would your day go? He's like, okay, we'll, we'll run the store. We'll hire somebody to run the store. I was like, is that something that you're going to do from day one? Or are you going to establish that store a year? Like, okay, yeah, for six months. Like, how are you going to manage your job? He's like, uh, we'll go over the weekends. You start thinking about the operational angle of that thing. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. And what's your expectation? What would be your top line? $20,000 a month. Okay. What will be your bottom line? 15,000. I was like, no pizza store has ever made 75% margin. Cox is going to be 5,000. Yeah. So then, so then, so then, so then if you think about the 20,000 is your expectation, yeah. you end up taking $4,000 home. How much are you making right now? You're making more than that after having gone through all that. He's like, no, but we'll open the second store. So, it's possible, yeah, quite possible, but you have to be risk averse 
to the point where it's obviously, you know, people think that the bankers are too risk averse and they're, it's almost detrimental for growth. But I think having that angle is really helpful because you just look at the fundamentals and say, this makes sense or not, period. I think there's another really beautiful point in sort of the underlying thing that you're saying. You're almost like, firstly, walking the person through the journey of what they're about to do. And you're almost like a VC who is on the receiving end of a pitch from a business owner who's like, you know, I want a loan from the bank to do this thing. And you're like, okay, let me understand this. This is what, this is what you're about. This is the journey you're about to embark on. Are you committed? Yeah. And if you don't see that, if you see a lack of commitment or doubt, uh, or you just help them realize what they're about to do. I think there's so much merit in that, in that. And my question here would be, do all the people who are sort of in that position have those kind of conversations, like high resolution conversations with their clients? Or it's like, you know, or is that, or is that more of like your personality? Because you have all those different sort of customer centric, buyer centric, user centric sort of framework because of communication, consulting and all that stuff. And that's how you approach the job or is that how the job is meant to be? I think, uh, <laughs> Different variations you will see amongst bankers, bankers who are trying to get new business, they're focused on getting new business, you know, they might have different risk appetite. Someone who's reviewing the deal structure, signing off on whether we're okay or not might have different. So that's the reason why banks have different areas that have to sign off on bringing a new customer, because they have different motivations. But Overall, someone who's got that experience, uh, consulting background or customer-centric background, you want to help the customer, right? What's your job? Your job is to make sure that you provide the best financial advice to your customer. So in that spirit, you could be pushing the boundaries from the bank's perspective. But if the thing is right, your fundamentals are strong, you should be doing that. What's the most important thing that I always looked at? And I think I was, I was taught by somebody who was senior. It was like, Numbers, everything makes sense. Okay, good. What's the customer's skin in the game? If the customer is not willing to put their skin in the game, why is the bank comfortable doing that? Bang on, man. Right? Like, yeah. like I, think, yeah. I think that to me is the biggest thing is what is your commitment? Like, are you, like the pizza example that I gave, terrible example, you're not even willing to leave your job. So what's the skin in the game? Why am I going to give you money? <laughs> right? When you're not committed to like growing that business. Yeah. Why would I do that? And if you are, let's say there is a gap still. Let's say you said, you know what? I don't have a personal net worth. I have a house. I'm willing to pledge it temporarily till the time I build my business. But there's still a gap. I think as a banker, I'm going to try to fill that gap somehow and say, okay, I'll meet you halfway. And I'll set milestones so that you get rid of this and you bring your true net worth or bring your true business valuation to that point where both are comfortable. You could do that. You could take that risk. And that depends on the personality, I think. Less about bankers, more about risk appetite of the bank and the banker. Right. But, but skin the game is really important. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the, another beautiful thing in what you're saying is that irrespective of it, this being finance and all numbers and analytics and, you know, stats and looking at projections, forecasting, revenue, it's still all about people, reading people, understanding them, what are their pain points, 
what excites them are they committed what's the skin in the game and ultimately the decision is not made by the algorithm but it's made by heuristics and based on sort of gut and that gut comes from what all of this stuff that's helping you get an informed decision yeah it's like a very maybe not a great uh, example but uh when i i really thought i wanted a slr dslr camera it's like oh my god this is what i want this is what i want and i bought a very expensive one at the time and when i went i took that for the first time on a holiday i was like so bored carrying it all around and then i realized there is a difference between being photographed and actually doing photography <laughs> it's same as i love pizza so much i'm going to open a pizza store <laughs> so beautifully articulated man that's that's like hits the nail on the head so you initially were in the sort of run the uh, bank run the bank and in the lending arm of the bank yes and then what happened after that Wh- where did you sort of pivot so, so uh, i yeah I, i wanted to diversify in the bank i loved the culture there so i was like okay let's explore so many other areas of the bank so i then went on to from money out to money in uh more on the personal side so covering business and personal money in money out uh being a banker to being a product manager so sort of that that one role gave me different dimensions and exposure to oh there are so many other things at the bank analytics uh you know finance treasury i got exposed to so many things as a product manager because you deal with them every day as a product manager you run a business so through that business you have different stakeholders that you have to a bring on board b partner with uh and work with right so so that was my next that was my first foray into product management and that was my last role in run the bank segment right right and with that understanding of how you make money understanding of how you run a product i then embarked my journey which is since the last 3 and a half 4 years around innovation Game so hold on just one second sorry for the audience listening so we've now come back full circle from where we started this conversation and now the audience has context into a little bit of who is this person and what is informing their thinking and thought process and where are they coming from right and so now when now now the current role that you described to us and we can get a sense of okay where is this person coming from what is their pov sort of on overall uh, how they see the world uh and i think uh that that four dimensional perspective is important because work you're not working in isolation you know when people say you know you have to have a work life balance you you are still that same person you know you can try but ultimately your personal experiences to all the things that you've done in your life and the kind of person you are in terms of your temperament are you a curious person are you rigid are you stubborn are you more analytical you know wh- where do you lean are you left brain right brain all those things come into fact into effect in terms of how you or your leadership style are you micromanager or do you let the person sort of all those things that we touched on now we get a sense of okay what kind of person this is and how their pov what's the color on their pov sort of yeah yeah and so this is like first role embarking on innovation uh understand five years of the bank two and a half years in consulting all very structured regimented roles clearly defined roles and now you're going into a space where 
we are trying to create something which is in a self-serve, like moving from a in-person interaction to a self-serve and yet being able to sort of, you know, serve the customer without the customer having to come to the branch, right? So, so now you're looking at a very different perspective. What are you trying to do? So you're looking at global markets. What's happening in India? What's happening in different parts of Asia, Europe, America, right? And you're trying to bring that kind of thought process and say, okay, I understand how the bank makes money. I understand how the businesses make money. I understand what their needs are. I understand how we manage our portfolios through product management. How do we make money as a business? So then, how do we solve this problem of a simple problem that you and I are having an interaction? So I'm uh, being a banker in a previous life. If I ask you five questions and you're a small business, right? How can I understand what your needs are? Five questions that I know, need to know from you. That will give me my output of, hey, you need this account? You need this credit card? You need this line of credit? You need this product? Period. Can it, can it be so simple? Or can you, do you have to go to the branch, go through a discussion, come back again, think about it? Or I give you the option of an output, which is like, wow, I just answered five questions and I got an output, which I can act upon. Let me think about it. Right. So, so thinking through that, I think that was, if you think about it, it's a very simple thing, but in a traditional bank setting, it's very difficult to sort of, you know, bring the stakeholders on board. And as I mentioned to you, I learned how to uh, shape the narrative. I learned how to position. Now I was going in front of the executives. It was a, it was a role. There was a uh, individual contributor role reporting to executives where I had to bring other executives in different areas of the bank to say, this is a one-pager. This is what we should do. This is what, how it will do. Benefits. Let me know uh, what your thoughts are so that I can explore this forward. So one is the whole, the, the, the uh, disruption piece or the product development piece that I was working on or the tool. The other was my experience of now, I have a very different mandate. I am the subject matter expert. I'm the one who's giving a POV of what we should be doing next, right? And that confidence to go in front of the SVPs, VPs and present, I think that was phenomenal. Uh, that was my first experience working in that space. And I loved it so much that, you know, what I loved about it is the, again, it was refreshing because I did not, I was not in a structured setting. I had all the time of the day, how I want to structure my day, what time I come in, what time I go out, as long as I deliver what I'm supposed to deliver. And, and it, was, it was just phenomenal. Everything that I learned from consulting to uh, banking, everything I learned, I was able to put in, in that. I, I spent only 10 months in the role, but that gave me the confidence of being in this gray, white space. And that's when I decided that I'm going to bring my experience into this gray white space. And if you want me to call, you want to call me a specialist, that my specialization is going to be operating in a gray space, irrespective of the topic, irrespective of the problem that we're trying to solve. So, so whole, you know, that whole product management thing, piece about what is the problem? You know, uh, what is the competition? 
you know what's the environment uh, uh, what are the pain points within that problem how are you going to solve those how do you going to test it how are you going to put it in the market how are you going to have a feedback loop of coming back making changes and then measuring success what are the key performance indicators that would say that this was success or this needs uh, iteration i think that's where yeah formally we all learn through courses through programs but on the job i was able to test that and that built my foundation into going into the area that i'm in now which was the external ecosystem digital identity which is to me when i was interviewing for this role i read many white pages to sort of uh white papers to sort of you know go and talk about it intelligently in the interview today if i think about it i think thank god people didn't hire me because of my pov because i didn't understand it it's so detailed it has blockchain it has machine learning it has so many elements but you have to cut through the noise and think about what is the problem that you're trying to solve what is the use case here doesn't matter if it's blockchain or not doesn't matter if it's machine learning or not what are you trying to solve and when you're solving it how does it reflect from a bank's risk appetite are we okay is there a bias is there are we able to be under the regulatory environment like you know meet those requirements all of that i think the last two and a half years in this role i think i've this has been the best role that i've done so far so many incredible things that i've sort of took away from uh what you were saying one is a lot of the stuff that you're describing in like product management is very similar to sort of what we would do in brand strategy and marketing where you're where you're sort of looking at okay what's the problem what's the pain point you know and then how do you and then how do you convey and message that or what's the solution you create for that and in mostly in marketing advertising you have a company or a business that you're advertising and marketing for that is solving that problem so you're not actually making that product but you're helping them communicate that product to the customer but in your case as a product manager or in product management you're not only doing that but you're actually building the the product itself right and you're and i think one thing i want you to talk about is definitely that you know when you kind of go through that that journey and you built a business case and then how do you present it to executives some of those learnings that you've had and and how do you and from all the skills that you developed in terms of communicating getting precise of like this is what i want you to take away this is what i need you to approve because this is my business case so talk a little bit about that part for sure one thing i really liked about what you said was that you did you you don't start with the technology and the engineering first you start with what is the use case what is the problem a person has who are the stakeholders what is the regulatory environment you start from there first and then you figure out okay what's the best way to solve that versus saying let's do something with blockchain yeah exactly and i think uh, i've tried to i've learned this in this role doesn't matter what the underlying technology is you could if you how do you solve the problem is a second thing what is the problem how do you define the problem is the most important thing and when you said about like you know positioning it to the executives uh you are talking about how do you what, what first i think the toughest thing is to be able to define a problem how do you define a problem like and how do you how accurate is that you know you could you could think about you could explore any technology any new concept any new hype that you would see in the market and you assess that like what is the use case what is the strength of that how can 
there be an emerging model or how can bank leverage it or any business leverage it for their consumption. But I think the key thing in terms of how do you get stakeholder or executive buy-in is how you translate that technology or that, that new thing into a use case that clearly solves a problem that a business is looking to solve for and articulates the benefits. Like if you just say that this is the coolest thing and we're going to invest in it, we need money because everyone's doing it, I think there's a gap. But if you bring it to the, to, to the table and say, hey, here's a problem that you are looking to solve and you haven't been able to effectively solve, this could actually solve it. This is the investment I would need. I still need to figure out. But here are the benefits. In the one, two, three, four, five years, these benefits are very high level. I have to explore that. But this is what I'm looking to solve. When you bring that hook to a business, then they're interested in, okay, what is this technology? What does it do? But if you start with like, oh, this is the coolest thing, we should invest in it. I think that's where there's a disconnect with people who, you know, the, the I mentioned to you, people who run the bank and people who want to transform the bank. Right, right. And to me, this part of product management where there's less BAU, less about managing your portfolio, more about developing new products and features and bringing new business models. I think that's, it's really exciting. And I'm very fortunate to be able to sort of, you know, get exposure in this space. And I'm right. And I would say that I think when you are in a group that is smarter than you, I think you've hit the jackpot. Right, right. I think you were also talking about, you know, the role people have played in your career. So do you want to sort of double click into that a little bit and tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Like, um, as I mentioned to you, uh, my agency time, as I mentioned to you, I have met uh, amazing, brilliant people in my consulting time that have actually made me go back and give me critical feedback and also make sure that I develop, right? And those are the people actually who also wrote the my reference to the B school and my reference to companies in Canada that I was applying to, right? So those are the sponsors uh, who have nothing to do with me now. I've left the country, I've left the company, but they're still sponsoring me. Uh, and then in the banking, being in different areas of the bank, I think here also I've been very fortunate to have had mentors, coaches, and more importantly, sponsors uh, who truly are invested in my development. And I think, I think to me, if I reflect, I don't, I don't think it's the education, it's the experience, but more importantly, it's these people, these leaders who have contributed in my development. And I, I, I think, uh, I hope I've done justice to you know, the, the opportunity that I've been given. So, so yeah, to me, that's my biggest thing. And it comes back to the point about in business, it's people, right? You develop through people, you get exposure through people, you get opportunities through people, you, you know, hustle with people. Um, that's what, that's what creates a perspective, which to me is everything. Right. Right. Definitely, man. I, so I, I don't know how much. I think this discussion has gone into philosophy. <laughs> Yeah, but, but but it is, it is. It, but it is. I you're right. Like we have gone into philosophy, and it's because ultimately, 
it is about people. It is about what, and that philosophy is also sort of connected to your perspective. And it is also connected to, you know, other people that you work with. And then ultimately, what is a bank? It's a, it's a company full of people. And that group of people put together is a collective. And that collective has a POV, right? And in terms of your experiences with the bank and the kind of innovative stuff that you're doing, I don't know how much you can actually talk about them publicly because I'm sure there's all, all of the sort of NDA and, you know, obviously there's secrecy in terms of what the bank is doing, but are there things that you can talk about without revealing too much? And, you know, in terms of like, how does the bank see blockchain? And of course not, I mean, maybe not, blockchain but how does the bank see all of this new technology and what kind of things are they doing internally to maybe not counter it or to get ahead of it anything that you can reveal which is i can sort of uh, talk about my personal perspective through my experiences yeah i think i think it's a fantastic thing how you know these fintechs and technology and product focused on technology are sort of coming into the market and disrupting the market, traditional business models. I think it's refreshing because that challenges your traditional models. That makes you think that is this model still good or do we need to change it? There are going to be best models that are going to fail. There are going to be models that are going to be successful. And in those successful models, how do you, not block them, but bring them into your ecosystem so that your customer is at an advantage of banking with you and yet being able to sort of get the best of the disruption, right? Like, so to me, I think if the focus is how do you, as a bank, banks play an important role in any economy. So if they truly play an important role in any economy, then it's important to nurture the economy. Right. So, so, uh, and what I've also understood is that a fintechs that would come in that haven't thought through regulations, operational risks, reputational risks, et cetera, and it's purely focused on product. And then there are some that would survive, some that would vanish because of the same reason. I think the bank has a, a sort of a, a, plays a heavy role in terms of that aspect of making sure that since they are in the trust business, they make sure technologies will come and go, but the trust of the customers should not be broken, right? How do you maintain that yet sort of foray into innovation? So I think, I think it's an amazing ecosystem what's developing. Uh, I personally love it because you get to think. And part of my job also, Paul, is to uh, write point of view uh, sort of for the executives of the bank in terms of, let's say, an Apple or Google, they announce something. What does this mean? How does What is the implication of that in the digital economy, ecosystem, and banks? And when you think of those things, those are like really important perspectives, right? You could see, for example, an Apple just saying that, oh, they make these phones that are like great. The, the camera is better than the last one. But you could go deep deep dive into their operating system and there are nuances from one generation to the other that's going to change the game and i and i and i, I try to get into that perspective of how is a a big tech thinking 
or how is a fintech thinking, how is a public sector thinking, then you know what your stakeholders are up to, right? And then what should you do in that? I think that to me, uh, it goes beyond product. It goes into strategy. But you know how people very loosely use the word strategy? I think at different stages of your career, strategy means different things. Uh, but I think, I think I'm, I'm getting to know how consultants or partners or thought leaders think through. I, I'm just, uh, I'm saying that I'm not a thought leader yet, I would say, but I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm exposed to the thought leaders and it's so powerful um, to think of that. So I think, right. I think that's, how, that's how at least I have understood being in my space, my job is to bring that perspective to the bank. So it, that a- Apple example that you were t- talking about, do you want to, can you talk a little bit more about that? Or is that like under like sort of wraps and you can't? No, it's, it's not about, it, it's not that. I think it's, it's uh, just. Or just like just, the cliff notes or like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the, 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 the short version for the audience. Yeah, it's, I think the, the whole concept of identity of a customer, uh, you know, it's a, it's a piece of document that's generally issued by government, the institution that's most trusted government banks. And when you see players like big tech players like Apple, Google entering that space, you wonder like, what is the level of assurance of that? And through that, you think about how, don't, don't, don't underestimate them because they are trying to solve the same problem at the highest level of assurance by leveraging or partnering with public sector, banks, et cetera. So, so I think, yeah, I think it, to look at that and to say, oh, wait a minute, are they trying to get into the financial services industry or are they actually trying to solve a specific problem for their ecosystem, right? That changes the narrative completely. An Apple Pay plays a different role than a Google Pay. Google Pay, why is Google Pay so successful in India? Because they're solving a problem that's for the masses, Right. And versus Apple Pay, it's contained. It's an ecosystem. They're solving a different problem for their ecosystem. But to have that clarity, uh, I think at least from my perspective, I feel so uh, informed when I have had thought through this. And not, I'm not just the one who's thinking through. I get inputs from my, my executives, the thought leaders in the bank, question me on my point of view. I have to go back and draw and think about it. I was like, oh, I didn't think about this thing. It's, it's phenomenal, I think. So if you were to sort of look at your experience and look at all the things that you've sort of done, and now you are working at a type A bank, and it's one of the top 10 banks in the world, and you are at the forefront in this innovative space of not where the bank is right now and the past success, not the present value, but the future value of the bank, where the bank can go, you know, and what role will it play in terms of, the citizen experience, its customers, and what what will be more relevant moving forward versus, you know, in the past, for example, it was just a place to store cash. Whereas, you know, slowly over time, banks are seeing the end-to-end journey, the path like of the, the lifetime value of a customer. So there, there there's some other stuff that I have also sort of been reading just out of curiosity in terms of what banks are trying to do. And I've also recently read that, you know, the, that our government is also working on a digital identity program 
where they're trying to get into, you know, you no longer will have to in the future carry your driver's license and all that. It will be maybe some version of an Apple wallet thing. I don't even know what it's going to look like and what's the underlying technology. Maybe it's going to be blockchain. Maybe it's going to be the conventional rails that have existed for, I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm definitely not a technology expert, Um, but are, is there anything at all that you can tell us from the, the work that you're doing or somebody else that you're seeing in the financial or space uh, doing that you found that was really interesting? I think uh, the point I want to make, you mentioned some digital identity schemes, et cetera, thought around it. I think, to, I think the concept existed, right? Some countries have done, India has done Aadhaar card, UK has done a great job. Some of the European com- countries have done a great job in setting up that identity scheme. Through pandemic, I think all sectors of the economy have woken up and have thought, okay, this is the right thing to do. But everybody has jumped into it. Be it Canada, every province is doing their own. Private sector is doing their own. Big techs are doing their own. What I mean to say is, there's going to be a lot of fragmentation in this whole digital life. Who's doing what? Oh, how do we make sure that one connects to the other? Uh, how, how do we make sure that the customer who's in the center is able to seamlessly transfer credentials from one to the other? Uh, there's going to be a lot of fragmentation. In my opinion, consolidation. And then the winning sort of model is going to be up at the forefront. From a customer perspective, it's going to be great. But before it becomes great, it's going to go through a lot of chaos. <laughs> yeah. Right. But rightly so. Right. Everybody has a right to play yeah, yeah. and say that this is the best model. So let's see who wins. Net-net, um, from, a, from a bank's perspective, I think banks have the responsibility of like, you know, having customer data um, and a trusted party in the ecosystem. Uh, it's also important to sort of make sure that it's able to provide the customers with the option to be able to connect with these different digital identity programs, whether right. it's Ontario, right. BC, federal, whatever it is, or Apple, Google. Right, uh, right, 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 right. So it's going to be very, it's, 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 it's a challenging problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. But I think we have embarked that journey already. Yeah. We will land somewhere. Okay, so Karen, so we've hit the two-hour mark now. I didn't even realize we've been talking for so long. It feel, it feel like it actually felt like five minutes. Yeah. Um, so in order to summarize this conversation, I would love for you to first talk about because, you know, for people who are in India potentially maybe listening to this or who live outside of uh, North America and are maybe coming from somewhere in Asia or whatever, is uh what are the three things culturally that they will find shocking when they start working in a North American environment? And what are three things that somebody should learn or focus on if they want to become, if they want to pick this path of product management? So what are, what are those three skills in terms of if somebody wants to get into product management? And then what are three cultural shocks people will experience when they move from working in India to working in North America? Yeah, I can, I can try. Yeah. Right. Let's give this a shot. And this is my, this is my version, right? Yeah. This is in your perspective. Yeah. I think, um, 
So we're, first, we're going to start with the journey from uh, yeah, from uh, India in, to so North three America. things that that are very different that you've experienced working in India versus here. Yeah, I think one is um, so important to, in the, especially in this market, position yourself, right, and position yourself rightly, not overselling or underselling. Just position yourself. Uh, that's one very important thing. Second thing, I think it's important to listen and understand the feedback that you're getting. You don't have to be defensive, right? You, we come from a culture where, you know, we, the, our first reaction is being defensive. So listen, understand, and also understand the perspective, right? Like where the other person is coming from. And I think finally, um, at the end, know that business, people, careers, you know, journeys, everything is the same in every country. It's the people, right? So you have to like have that confidence from your experiences that at the end, what's important is whether it's an interview or networking session, or you need to be able to connect. How do you connect? Genuinely connect. I think when you genuinely connect and showcase your vulnerabilities of what you don't know and what you know, I think that sort of brings, that gives the other person the confidence that you are being, you are, you are actually honest about what you know, what you don't. So to me, that to me cuts through the culture. So if I was to sort of summarize, and if, if I've understood this correctly, the first thing is as, and, and this is like such a cultural thing is like, you know, typically when you meet someone, especially if you're a hiring manager and you're talking to somebody, you realize that we always come off as, oh, I can do everything. And whereas in North America, you know, it's like, no, but what's the one thing that you do? You do best. Because the, the, what happens is that typically the hiring manager will freeze. So they're like, if you could do everything, then where do we put you in the organization? Because we're looking for this skill set. Yeah. And that's like the default setting, you know, of because they're just so enterprising and they want to be doing a lot more. So I think culturally, that's a big difference between coming from India to here is that when, when you're applying to a specific role, speak to that role yeah. and that skill set, yeah. even though you can do a lot of other things, yeah. be specific. Yeah. And, uh, and once you actually get the job, then expand your horizon and bring yeah. all those other perspectives to the, exactly. so that's one thing that you talked about the first one. And then the second is, Focus on the people and the relationships, build those, build the bridges. And, and then finally be open to feedback and like, don't let, don't make the feedback personal. A lot of people do that. I did that when I was new, I think when I was yeah. like meeting people, I was like, what do you mean? That's not my strength. I don't have any weaknesses, I think. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, Shit. Actually, dude, that's such a good point. What you'll realize is that instead of, playing up your weaknesses be honest and say actually i don't know this i'm not an expert and that will be actually way more effective than you trying to oversell something that's not there yeah and and, and that's something that i've noticed here is that people are way more honest and so if you are honest about and you're and you're not acting salesy you're being honest about your intention like people read that here very quickly so don't try to oversell. No. Focus on the relationship and get specific. 
especially when you're trying to get a job. Yeah. Don't don't go all over the place. Just listen. Yeah, listen and get the feedback and work on it. And sometimes you don't want the feedback. Sometimes you don't like the feedback. That's fine, right? But at least understand where the person is coming from because that will help you position yourself later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there's another thing that you said earlier, which was brilliant, which was, you know, just like that experience of learning how to communicate with executives, getting very specific on what to put on a slide. You know, this is the point and this is what I want you to take away from it. That's literally what you're doing in job interviews. Instead of saying everything, 20 things, you're saying, no, this is what I can do. And the reason I can do this really well is because I have experiences in this side, this side, but it's because I can do this really well. So you can bring in those other things that you do, but from the lens of this one thing that you're applying for. Yeah. So let's say if it's in a bank, you're like, you know, because I've worked in design or I've worked in, you know, customer facing roles, I understand people. And I know that this role requires a lot of relationship building, bridge building, talking to executives. So I have that skill. So now you're bringing it from that lens and communicating it in a way which is relevant and contextual to that job. So I, I think the, the points that you made are brilliant. And so now, before we get into the last three, do you want to add anything to this? Any other thoughts that might be sort of lingering? I think it's important to understand, like even before you come to Canada, what is, what is the objective? What are you trying to do, right? Or to North America. Like, it's, there's no point come in and then you're like disappointed understand like you know this is but if you have a clear objective i think it becomes very easy to settle in to like sort of culturally but also understand that you're coming to a place where the people that you might be interacting like canada is a you know a, a diversity pot right like it's a melting pot like it's 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 amazing like the culture is amazing here but if you're interacting with people who've, who are from canada who've lived in canada while you do not forget your roots, forget who you are, you should also take the initiative to understanding their perspective because you are living in their country. Yes, and, I totally agree. And if you want to really embrace that country as yours, you need to understand uh, their perspective as you expect them to understand your perspective. Yes, I totally agree. In fact, this reminds me of our childhood when, when, you know, any guests would come over to your house, the way your parents would, would give you sort of like a pre guest arrival checklist. <laughs> checklist of, you know, how to behave and how to do certain things. And even when we as kids would go to other people's house. So it's, so when you're coming from a different country to this country, it's better to acclimatize to this culture. Because that's the beauty, you know, and I, and I find that such a missed opportunity for people who, I mean, of course, you know, do whatever you want, what makes you happy, do that, right? But I think I feel in my personal experience, it's a missed opportunity to go to a different place, different country, and not embed yourself in that culture, converse with other people. Because if you're going to travel thousands of miles, come to a different country and just speak to the people that you were always speaking to, then what's the point? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. I think it's important, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will really help. Like that was a really good point. That definitely yeah. touched a really soft nerve for me as well. Um, okay, so so now the the three skills or temperament, attitude, whatever that 
that that you feel a product, somebody who wants to get into product management, especially in a large corporate organization, what are the maybe the top three skills that you always go to or think are the most effective or you feel are missing in people? Yeah, I think um, at a very high level, there could be many things and you could be strong in many of those. Uh, I can touch upon a few, like a strong business acumen, right? And when I say that, it sort of, it, 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 what I mean to say is understanding how the bank makes money, how a product makes money. That's important. And then also try to go deep into it, right? Like what are the mechanics associated with it, et cetera. And then if you understand that, the foundation, the fundamentals, when you're narrating your story about, let's say, a new product or why your product is making money or why do you want to can a product or why do you want to launch a new product, new feature, you're very, you're in a very good position to sort of narrate your story, it doesn't have to be all in that story, but you know what the foundation is. So you have any questions, you can position it. You can answer those questions, right? That gives the executives or the stakeholders confidence that you understand it, you have thought about it. And on that second point, learn how to tell your story. Right? Like it's everybody has a different style. Don't copy, don't, yeah. I mean, to me, I mentioned before, I think if I learn something that I really like from somebody, I'm going to copy it. I'm going to replicate it. My style, but I'm going to do that. I think my key education has come from other people where they've done such a great job. I'm like, this is what I'm going to use in my next pitch and see how I can make my own, right? So I think that's very important. Do not, you know, I see, I hear a lot of people saying that, yeah, I understand it. I understand the data. I understand the analysis. I I know the recommendation, but they're missing the point that the executive might have 20 other products and 30 minutes for you. They don't have as much depth as you do in that. So make sure you communicate that clearly. Articulate what's the ask, what's the problem, what is the customer gap. Articulate those things and work on that, right? Like, and obviously as you do more, you'll be able to do a good job. And I think finally, um, especially in the new product development space and the new tech or fintech space, I think it's important to assess the opportunity from an angle of what the use case is versus what this shiny object is, right? It's, it's phenomenal to like, why not? Jump on a shiny object, read through it, you know, tear it apart, but then also bring it to the business and say, uh, yeah, this makes sense. Or, you know what? My point of view is, at this point, this does not make sense. Let's watch the space. I think, I think that would help your executives or stakeholders make informed decisions in terms of where the funding, there's limited funding, limited resources. Where should you put what, at what time? That helps them, right? Like, so I think that's, it, that is the onus of a product manager. That's what, that's what I would say. Rest everything, I think it's, again, people, you have your different styles. It's not overly complicated. Yeah, just know the fundamentals, know your story. That's about it. Amazing, man. Um, so I'm going to quickly summarize first. So one is know how the business makes money. Two, get really good at communication. And three is, it, oh, sorry, but by the way, under that communication piece, um, 
what you're really trying to do is think about your audience and you're thinking about what, what do they need to know? Because an executive will want to know in two lines and maybe your colleague will need a more in-depth and maybe the person underneath you or the person that you're working with on the product who's maybe an engineer might need a more in-depth understanding. So by having the business fundamentals, you can build the business case and get the attention of the executives because now you know how to communicate that idea with two, three lines and know that that's the information that that person is looking for. So brilliant, man. I am, uh, I really, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned so much and it was so good to actually do a deep dive into sort of your whole journey and seeing how now when you look back, how all the dots connect. Um, so before we wrap up, one thing I want, I want you to, uh, I want to do is of course, if there's any final words that you want to leave off with, that's one. And then lastly, if people want to connect with you, either if they're looking for a coach or a mentor, or they're potentially just want to have a conversation with you, learn more, where can they reach you? Yeah, I think I, I'm just going to say my, my final words, like my experience was phenomenal. I think through this discussion, there's a few points that I want to reflect myself uh, because I, as this is a very candid chat, I wasn't really prepared to like discuss that, but, but uh, I have some things that I want to reflect on and that will help me sort of actually in my development, personal or professional. So, uh, so thank you for that experience. Really You're welcome it. for the therapy session. <laughs> All right, folks. So uh, I'm going to put uh, Karan's LinkedIn uh, profile link in the podcast episode description and you can connect with him. All right, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.